0: The Giant Thinker's
1: Giant Thinker's Podcast. Hey guys, welcome to the show. I'm Ram Castillo and in this podcast, I'm bringing to you top experts from various industries worldwide to learn from their success and to help us become better designers, creatives and giant thinkers. Hello Wonderful Giants, it's Ram Castillo here. Welcome to episode number 41. Our guest today is a graduate of RISD and has flourished into many amazing things. A few titles under her humble belt include her being the former creative director of the White House, currently design exponent at Automatic, side note here, Automatic are the people behind WordPress.com, WooCommerce, Jetpack, SimpleNote, Longreads. Vaultpress, Gravatar, and many more online open-source publishing tools. Our guest is also an editorial board member for Design Observer, national board member for AIGA, and an international speaker. Some of the topics we spoke about include the responsibilities behind the role when CD at the White House, advice for cultivating an entire institution's brand values, tips for rapport building and networking with practical examples, the importance of taking time off during transition periods, and much, much more. There's also three photos of various artifacts that our guest has kindly shared with me and has given the green light for me to share them with you guys too. So make sure you head to giantthinkers.com. Find the blog post of this episode and you'll be able to see them as it contextualizes a few things she speaks about. And while you're on GiantThinkers.com, if you haven't already, I invite you to sign up for the mailing list where you get occasional emails from me on new episodes, articles and events. But if email isn't your thing, add me on Instagram or Snapchat. I'm highly active on there. My handle is TheGiantThinker. It's the fastest way to reach me as well if you have any questions and you get to see my day-to-day activities. Now, without further ado, I present my good friend, the talented and delightfully calm Ashley Axios. Ashley Axios, welcome to The Giant Thinker's podcast. How are you going?
0: Great. Thank you so much for having me.
1: So for the listeners, Ashley and I met in 2014 uh, during my first US tour. So it's been a few years in the making and I'm so glad that we could tee this up. First off, Ashley, I have an icebreaker question for you. If you had to save one item in your house, what would that be and why? Oh
0: man, so I imagine this discludes Living, you know, people, pets, right? So, <laughs> yeah, from yeah, that. I'd say
1: that. I'd say that.
0: <laughs> <laughs> um, okay, I think I'm also feeling pretty nostalgic right now, but I think I would take my kind of small box of White House memorabilia with me because most of my photos, um, all that is like digital now, so it's all backed up, and um, I try not to you know, hold on to possessions too much. Most things are pretty replaceable, but I don't know that I'd be able to replace <laughs> uh some of the little tokens I've collected over the, the past few years. Well,
1: that's pretty cool. Not many people can say they've got um a White House memorabilia. What what are we talking here? Like what what are they uh can you describe some of them?
0: Yeah, so I have um something that was pretty fun. Most people don't get to go to Camp David, um which is a presidential retreat. It's meant just for the president and um people that he directly invites. But President Obama was generous enough to allow his staff to go, and I think he was one of the first presidents to really do this, uh to like open up the presidential retreat and allow staff to go for staff retreats. So our office went for a retreat a couple years ago and Um, I was really surprised to find um, the U.S. military makes these coins. They call them challenge coins. So any branch of the military can kind of challenge another branch and then they have to trade coins. And whichever one is the highest ranking coin kind of wins. Um, So I was really surprised to find that they had made challenge coins of a logo that I designed internally in the military staff on the base at Camp David. So it was like this thing that I never would have seen if I hadn't gotten this invite and had the chance to go to this place that nobody gets to go. Um, and then to find something that actually related back to me was just such a surprise. So I got to bring a few of those back with me and, and they're pretty special. That's um, the cool. logo, yeah, the logo is for um, the G8 summit uh, that the president had in in Camp David.
1: That's amazing. Um, We're going to have to try to get a photo of that, maybe put put that up with this uh, blog post. Um, Oh,
0: I'd love to give you (laughs) one, yeah.
1: (laughs) So, Ashley, where would you say your expertise lies?
0: Oh, man. So, I, you know, I wouldn't call myself like an expert in any one thing. And, you know, that's what they like warn people about. (laughs) (laughs) You know, don't be like a jack-of-all-trades type right um, you know expert in none but i actually think it's served me pretty well and has helped me kind of grow to be a leader in a digital and design sense because i've touched on all aspects of digital media on all aspects of design um especially within the graphic design digital interactive product spaces so it is pretty natural for me to connect the pieces and make sure that we come up with like really great comprehensive plans and campaigns um to roll out that might have been difficult otherwise so i think i fit pretty well in that strategic thinking connecting um the dots and really um figuring out how the whole can be greater than the sum of its parts
1: yeah i i really love that um and i i'm gonna have to agree with you as well with um the perception of you know a jack of all trades um not being an expertise, um, in itself. Cause I think, well, a, that we can now, especially more than ever, uh, living in a world of hyphens under our name, we can certainly have many, many expertise, um, <laughs> to our name. Um, and yeah. part two to that is that we're constantly evolving our expertise and creating new versions of roles and, Um, responsibilities. Uh, So yeah, that's, that's really cool. So uh, can you tell us a little about your childhood and how you grew up?
0: Sure. So I don't have any, you know, really fantastic childhood stories, but I grew up outside of the DC area until I was about seven. Um, I have an older brother. I was always kind of the artsy kid I liked to draw. Um, we ended up when my parents got divorced we moved to New Jersey and in some ways that was great because I got closer to my mom's side of the family and um, being in New Jersey I had closer access to New York museums and design and um, my mom's side of the family has quite a few people who are artists and one of her cousin's in the advertising industry. And and I think those kind of connections helped open the doors to what would be, you know, my future design career um, moving from artist to designer. But one of my mom's favorite stories to tell about me, um, and I have no idea what this says about me, but I still like I'm trying to unpack it. So maybe one of you listening can tell me what this means. Um, <laughs> my, she used to say, like, well, like, actually, you're really interesting because you'd make things, but you wouldn't just make them. You would then go door to door to our neighbors and, like, not just give them these things, but you'd ask them to buy them, <laughs> 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 which is really bold. <laughs> um, and I don't think I was especially bold child, so it is. It kind of fascinates me that somehow that felt really natural to me to make things and to like ask people to like invest in the thing if they wow. wanted it
1: to, to pay for it. <laughs> well, I, I, was, I was just about to ask you, when did you realize you wanted to be a designer? But I think that really speaks to that, uh, you know, that really reveals a lot about uh, the qualities of you being a designer, especially when we look at it as not just being a visual craft star, but a problem solver, a business thinker, um, a commercialized artistry.
0: Yeah, you know, I I guess it kind of just built up over time. I'm sure part of it was the influence. My dad is always entrepreneurial; he had his own business, and um, and so part of that might have like rubbed off on me in some way. Um, but it, it's it's kind of it's kind of fun to think of how we can evolve and and develop to be passionate or comfortable in certain zones. Um, another thing that kind of ties into that is I never you know, we had the computers. I'm not so old that, like, I haven't had any exposure to computers when I was younger. It was just a little more limited. My dad would build his own, Um, but I was always a little cautious. That was probably my first, like, hesitation in getting into graphic design specifically was, I like making things. I like feeling them, doing them by hand. And this computer thing seems like a, a barrier, but I would make business cards when I was little, like waiting for my dad to get done with his work day with just kind of post-it notes, writing out the letters. <laughs> and then I'd laminate them with, uh, you know, clear tape <laughs> on both sides. So some of that stuff people are like, now, you know, you go, Oh yeah, like that's graphic design. There's no other, <laughs> you know, category that really fits into, um, But at the time, you know, there was nobody around, I think, to tell me what that was. So I kind of found it in different venues.
1: And what was the leap that kind of took you from making as a hobby to really not only just considering but committing to a life of learning about design and design thinking? Uh, Because I uh, have seen that you – Studied at uh RISD, mm-hmm. and so how was that period of your life for you?
0: It was great. I mean, I was that was another that was like probably my second hesitation for whatever reason. I had guess developed a little bit of this like snobby snobby artist attitude or something like that. um <laughs> For my love of like making, I was like, will people not think that I can naturally make it on my own if I go to a school, like if I get a degree related to it, well, then they think that I have, you know, that it was like instilled in me by an institution or something like that. Um, So I had a little bit of like a hesitation there um, with that. But I had a, a good teacher in high school who encouraged me to see that design is much bigger than making for ourselves. And I think as a person who's really always been empathetic and always wanted to do things to help other people and and I've always been very socially conscious and social uh socially driven and the stuff that I do that was an extra nudge for me if I wanted to do work for other people make lives better for other people somehow like didn't know exactly what that would look like but I needed to get more experience than my own and that's not something I could just you know craft and illustrate and visualize by looking at my own surroundings I needed to figure out how to work with other people and organizations in that kind of customer relationship Mm. Um, and I think that's one of the big differences between design and art Um, although (laughs) so that's a hard thing to define Um, I think that that's that's a pretty important component
1: and so when we talk about you uh getting into a role uh that uh you are most recently known for former creative director for the White House. How did how do you even get to that point? How is that opportunity, I guess, presented to you?
0: It's still a little bit beyond me. It's not something that you just plan for and then make your way to. <laughs> um but I, I guess, you know, I focused on the things that I wanted to achieve and I wanted to do work, design work for causes and, um, you know, wanted to use my design skills to make the world a better place, make lives better for individuals. And so that drove me after school from Rhode Island at RISD to the D.C. area just because of a high concentration of nonprofits, um, international aid organizations. Um, I was like, "Well, oh, this is a pretty good place to go for that type of work. And it was through seeking out that work and building relationships in the Washington, D.C. area and through um, these institutions that I was able to then kind of discover this role at the White House. And it happened by me meeting the former creative director at um, an AIGA. Happy hour um, for the DC chapter. So, you know, I wasn't looking for a job at the time and he wasn't looking for anybody, um, but he reached out later and it was just, you know, relationship building with um, kind of the ultimate goal of networking.
1: So let's talk about that a little bit uh, when it comes to that area of networking and relationship building, rapport building. Um, you said uh, the two words seeking opportunities. I think a lot of emerging designers, uh, especially who listen to the show, uh, they are met with that very challenge. You know, what is the best way uh to network? So what is an environment or a tool that you found useful to propel you to uh that area of of improving your and expanding your network? Because I, I think um you know, it can easily be said that uh, you are super polite. You are not the loudest person in the room. And I think a lot of people can resonate with that type of personality too. Have you got any advice around that?
0: Yeah. I mean, I don't think you have to be the life of the party to network really effectively or to make the connections that you need um, for career building. I think it's really about being authentic and Um, and knowing one why you're there (laughs) um, and what you're looking to achieve and you're not trying to sell the other person that you're talking with that you just met on these things Um, but you're trying to get to that authenticness where if it comes up you can really say you know yeah, you know, I'm just trying to look for that social good type of work, or, you know, I'm really passionate about X issue and have been thinking about that. And you have a conversation about it where they've actually learned something about your interest. And if they just happen to see something that comes up that fits that, they might think of you. Um, and one of the worst things that we can do in trying to network is fill valuable space with, like, kind of crappy small talk. <laughs> Um, because nobody's benefiting from like the pleasantries and the discussion of the weather and you're not really learning anything meaningful about the other person. Um, So, uh, you know, really trying to get to something that's fruitful, even if that's starting with um, a story that you recently heard on, you know, your public radio or whatever it may be um, to kind of open up. To something that's a little bit more in depth than the kind of pleasantries where we uh, we start out.
1: Totally. And uh, you mentioned you went to an AIGA event in DC. Uh, were you throwing yourself into a lot of face-to-face interactions, or were you um, were you doing a lot of uh, social media engagement online when you were connecting with? Uh, Uh, industry people
0: i have grown into doing more stuff online but i for me and just getting started where i was at then i i would say it's more about just getting plugged in wherever i could and i started by volunteering with a local chapter of aiga um which i think was really really helpful because i built connections with the leaders in the chapter um in a more natural setting, smaller group, I could come to events, you know, some of the events were free and help set up. Um, and so I had some things to do, so I didn't feel like I was just going there to network and it took a little bit of the pressure off. Um, and then it felt natural for me to then kind of, once I started to understand more and more about what this, um, association was about to get more involved and I ended up joining the board. So I think you can ease into a lot of these things. if you're more comfortable doing it in a digital space, then that certainly works as well. Just kind of sharing what you're about, following people um, who either challenge your values and or people who share similar values so you can continue to learn. Um, but, you know, making it a point to actually get to some engagement too. Some of us will just like or retweet on, you know, Twitter, for example, somebody that we admire and kind of check it off as an engagement, <laughs> Yeah. but we're not, we're not really engaging with them in that instance. So we have to kind of build up to maybe the next step, which is, you know, replying to something and saying, I really appreciate that you share this because X and um, starting to kind of build a um, relationship, even if it's an entirely online relationship.
1: Yeah. And that's a lot of what I uh, have also uh, encouraged, especially with my latest book, how to get a mentor. Um, and even things like if you read an article, there's that little bit down the bottom that says, leave a comment. And oh yeah, it's so funny how little, uh, people use that amazing tool down the bottom because the author will read all the comments and it's such a great opportunity to express uh you know what uh did you find valuable from the article or you know just giving your point of view as well um and so it is it is so good that you describe that an engagement isn't just simply like okay browsing over and then maybe hitting the like or or sharing it i think that the the author um or the content creator is certainly looking for people's feedback and and they they actually want to hear from you so um that's that's really cool so when we speak about your role as uh the former creative director so at the time when you were the creative director of the white house what kind of responsibilities did you have to deliver upon
0: oh man so it was a lot we're a pretty scrappy team so my role of Creative Director existed within the Office of Digital Strategy at the White House, which is the first ever office of its kind. Um, president Obama was the first president is the first president to have uh, a creative director, even. so everything was very new. and we're kind of the startup in the heart of the White House, making changes and developing rules and testing the waters and kind of setting our own precedent um, as we as we went along. So, with that, I probably did a few more things than you would expect, but I'll kind of run through um, run through those. So, a big one was determining the best ways to visually represent the brand, and that includes the brand of the White House as a historical institution and um, as the executive office and the residence of the First Family. This kind of dynamic uh, presence within. Uh, the country, as well as a kind of global scale, um, as well as the brand of President Barack Obama, who was the man elected into office um, and whose administration I was serving on. So, figuring out the best ways to visually represent the both of those and how they kind of coordinate with one another, uh, and then I managed our small design team, um, and then of course, because our design team was so small, there's a lot of hands-on work as well. So, apart from the creative director, is also, you know. Um, branding designer, product designer, marketing, uh, social, all of that stuff.
1: Sounds like a, um, almost like a a little design studio within the, uh, yeah, within the administration department of, (laughs) of the White House.
0: Yeah. So we were, we're charged with doing everything public facing for the White House. And that bridged from the, Public facing platforms to communicating the policy that was being rolled out to, you know, making sure that the branding, the use of the White House seal um, was kind of appropriate and event banners and all that stuff. Um, so, really like an in house team um, in some capacities because it's for the White House's institution. But because the White House is also comprised of really different offices, the Office of Science and Technology Policy, or um, the National Economic Council, um, we had these internal clients as well who are very distinct from one another and had really different needs um, that allowed us a lot of room to play and come up with very different branding and campaigns um, that um, didn't have to, you know, fit a suite of look and feel that was. Too locked down for us, um, but a- apart from the design, the kind of creative director part, because I was in the office of digital strategy, we're also doing this whole other realm of work as an office. So we're creating opportunities for engagement between um, the our really global audiences, but particularly Americans and the administration, um, and that stuff like Google Plus Hangouts with the president or um, inviting YouTube influencers to come in and uh, do Q&A times in the White House or getting the president on Twitter and Facebook to begin with so that we could um, more easily share what's happening in in his world, Um, as well as kind of opening up the information and making the White House itself more transparent. So we're also charged with things like Posting all of the budget data on GitHub and um, making sure that when the US was negotiating the Iran nuclear deal, um, the full deal was designed and then published in not just PDF form, but also on Medium as a fully readable uh, document. And, you know, making sure there was really clear ways for people to contact the White House with forms that are pretty familiar and up-to-date. Um, so they just launched, after I left actually, a, a form that is integrated into Facebook. So you don't even have to go to whitehouse.gov to communicate with the White House and to ask the president a question or send him a note or a message. Um, so really just making sure that the White House, as this historical institution, was also capitalizing on all the digital tools and technology of our day in order to kind of connect the broader public <laughs> at large um, with the the president and people who are kind of behind the scenes.
1: Yeah, it sounds like you had to have a certain level of of governance towards the brand, and also to. Uh... I guess, visually articulate a lot of guidelines uh, in line with the, the values, the tone of voice, um, and, and of course, just functional stuff. Like, I, as you said, forms that are easy to use, easy to understand without having to go through, you know, uh, mountains of pages of, of uh, information. Um, my question is then what was the trigger to I guess create this um and implement all of these uh different deliverables that you had to uh create. I mean, why why now rather than I guess before um Obama's time? Was it um you, you just mentioned that this is the first um role that was created um, in the space of the digital, uh, transformation office. Um,
0: yeah, I think it's, it's so multi-part because in part, um, it's just how fast technology has really changed. Right. So it was, it was very natural, uh, when the presidents used to give, um, kind of written statements and they would go to press and people would get them, you know, in their newspaper, <laughs> um, or before a movie starts in their kind of daily reel. And then it felt natural once there was radio that some of these things would be incorporated into radio broadcasts and delivered into their home. And that was really innovative. And then it kind of evolved even further where um, you know, with T V there was even broader access and um you know, we went from having we had fireside chats, which were these regular speeches from um, the president back in the time of radio that kind of evolved over time. That's, I think probably one of our best examples of the evolution, um, it turned into a TV broadcast, the weekly address. Um, and then we turned it into, a you know, a video broadcast that was posted to YouTube and other channels. Um, And evolved it even further into these Q and A's. So instead of just it being one directional with the advent of uh, social media on top of the internet, now there is social media, which creates these opportunities for back and forth dialogue. Kind of regardless of location, we could really create that uh, conversation and dialogue between The global audience and the administration in real time. So it's partly, I think, just the expectations of people evolving over time where nobody was putting pressure on us to do this, but it felt pretty natural. Um, And then for this president in particular, for President Obama, he was elected into office in part because he did such a great job and his campaign did such a great job in 2008 utilizing digital technology and design to communicate what his values are and who he is as a man and um, to really sell and connect him with constituents in a way that um, allowed him to win. So then it felt natural, of course, to bring in technologists, to bring in designers, to bring um, in kind of digital strategy to the White House to make sure that it didn't feel like a campaign trick, right? Like, oh, you have all this access to me and we're dialoguing and having a great old time. And then as soon as I get into the White House, like it's quiet. (laughs) (laughs) You're just going to hear from me when I'm on the news or whatever. We wanted to kind of create that same environment and um, really allow for that same level of connection inside the White House too. So that added an extra kind of incentive for us. Like, can we keep this up? Even though now we're in this new environment that has its own levels of red tape and um, is not really built and flexible around it, doesn't have the campaign financing um, that the campaign was able to use to get this stuff done. So we took that model and had to adapt it into the atmosphere of government in the White House to to make it work with a whole lot less, um, with a need to communicate to a whole lot more people and (laughs) at the same time.
1: Yeah, that really makes sense. Um, and, uh, wow, what an opportunity it was for, for you. Um, when it comes to choosing one project, if you had to choose one, uh, that you were most proud of while you were there, what, what would it be?
0: I man i I feel really lucky because there are a lot of projects that I'm really proud of and really just um feel honored to have worked on so I think depending on when you ask me, I might give you a different answer but <laughs> one that one that's just um a pretty big one for me was around the supreme Court uh gay marriage decision to legalize gay marriage across the u s um something that had been fought for on the ground across the U- United States on a state by state level. But this meant that it was gonna be consistent and that the groundwork didn't need to keep happening state by state to try to pass reform and laws so that um, people could marry whoever they wanted to. Um, and we knew that the decision, we knew obviously that this um, was before the Supreme Court. Um, and so they were gonna decide either way. Uh, within a certain time frame. And we planned for it and decided that we were going to light the White House up in rainbow colors as a show of support, uh, kind of signifying uh, the symbolism of the, um, the kind of gay pride movement, LGBTQ movement. Um, and we decided we we're going to do this either way once um, and that we we're going to create profile images uh, for our social media accounts that match this. So we changed the White House avatar on Facebook and Twitter and Instagram and across individual staff members' accounts to these uh, iconic rainbow White House ones. So we did all of this on the day of, and it was really just beautiful. I think it was something that showed the American people that we we're with them, that this usually kind of disregarded or underrepresented group of people had the support of, you know, the very top of their government, you know, regardless of how the decision turned out. Um, And I think it also created a lot of movement across the globe, too, saying that this type of movement was possible because a short, you know, even just five years ago within the same administration, Nobody would have really imagined that we'd have that kind of movement, uh, and change. So it was a big day. Even internally, we had people who'd never really talked about their, you know, sexuality or their, their preferences who were, you know, opening up about how much it meant to them and some of the personal reasons why. And it created an amazing bonding experience and something I'm going to, uh, remember, you know, for uh, my entire life for sure.
1: Yeah, I actually remember that, uh, that uh, project um, that you described, uh, seeing it on the news here in Australia, um, all over the news. And um, yeah, it was, it was really powerful stuff. Um, I wanted to know what was the single most challenging aspect of your role at the time?
0: Mm, That's an interesting one. I think there are a few different parts. One is that everything was important at the white house (laughs) (laughs) no pressure Um, there right (laughs) yeah it's like which you know what do you do you only have so many hours in the day and yet like everything that's coming your way is important you can't just be like well that's obviously (laughs) like (laughs) not a priority um so i really had to learn to choose or kind of to make the best use of my and my team's time um for maximum impact, um, really getting a sense of not what was important based on like a totally subjective scale. Um, but what was going to be an important thing for us to work on for level of impact and reach and really the, the goals that we're trying to achieve holistically as an administration.
1: Yeah, that, that, uh, and especially with what you've already described about your role, um, that's exactly what kind of I was thinking. I was like, you know, how how do you even choose um, what to focus on? But um, and I'm sure a lot of the listeners also feel that way in in the roles that they're in at the moment. Um, just just with the nature yeah. of, of deadlines, right? So, <laughs> um,
0: yeah, absolutely. Yeah. I mean, and I I just gave the example of you know. The Rainbow White House. So I'd be, I know I'd feel bad if I didn't mention this, but you know I worked on the Avatar, the graphic element for that at night when I went home, and that was because we had so many other major projects going on. That you know, looking at the scope of all of them, that was actually the thing that like couldn't make it into work time. (laughs) Wow, (laughs) which is amazing um, because it was so impactful, and so. I knew and made the choice to work on it when I got home. And in kind of, you know, you can't really call it spare time because every, you know, you're kind of always working um, when you work at the White House. But that was kind of something that I had to dedicate time to outside of like even the normal long working hours at the White House. And so there were times where you had to kind of break the rules and it kind of emphasized for me just knowing Break the rules isn't the exact, exactly the right frame, but you set the boundaries of trying to make sure that you know what the priorities are. And then in instances like that as designers, sometimes we just have to say, even though this still is priority seven for the week and the other things are going to take up all my time, it's still worth doing. Like I'm going to figure it out. I'm going to put in the extra time to get it done. Um, I think we're kind of we're lucky as creatives that we can be passionate and do that, mm. and that our projects tend to be manageable enough that we can do something like that in our spare time. It's not like my counterparts at the White House were sure they if it were possible, they'd develop a whole nother you know policy strategy around um you know whatever issue, but that would take six months, not. <laughs> Um, You know, however long it took me to design the, uh, the icon.
1: What did you learn most by working for the office of now former President Obama? What was there something that really stood out for you?
0: Yeah, I think I learned that you know, really all the things that I struggled with that I thought made me maybe less fit for the job or. You know, just gave me those feelings of insecurity as a new person starting uh, the job at the White House, actually ended up being some of my greatest strengths and assets in that environment. Um, so, like, you know, I felt, you know, not being of a super upper class background put me at a disadvantage. And I felt other from a lot of people who were there and had, um, you know, been in wealthy families for a long time. Mixed race, um, not, you know, not super interested in politics and that kind of divisive political party gaining control type of way. Um, wasn't familiar with all the political heads, the kind of political figureheads and what each of them had achieved and what their aims were and that kind of strategy. Um, wasn't really my game before getting into the White House. Um and i still I had debt, you know, I wasn't a hundred percent financially secure, I still had student loans, so it wasn't ease in that kind of way, but I learned that like all of those things actually made me more empathetic, <laughs> made me um a much better ambassador for the people who are trying to connect with as an administration. so I was able to come up with more you know compelling graphics to talk about the importance of filing for financial student aid because I had financial student aid. Um, I knew what that looked like and I had context and you know my experience brought a lot of breath to the team even though going in it was something I felt a little weird about. Um, So that was that was huge and I actually learned to see it in other people too just seeing all the differences and how. The diversity of perspectives that we all bring when we come from wherever we come from, with whatever our family history is, or, you know, um, kind of physical, sexual, racial, um, all those things that we bring into play actually make us uh, as a team a lot more fit to solve challenges and to design things that function really well for our end users.
1: Mm, I appreciate you being so transparent with that. Uh, I'm sure that's going to speak to the hearts of many listeners for sure. So, Ashley, in November last year, uh, Debbie Millman invited me to attend an event called Brand Stand in New York, which was about (laughs) branding and politics hosted by the School of Visual Arts. And you were one of the speakers, along with Stephen Heller, Susan Milligan and Seth Godin. Uh, one of the opening slides, uh, when I attended and we, when you went up there, your uh, one of your slides said, the best brands are built on values. What's your advice for cultivating and curating an entire institution's values?
0: That is a great question. And I mean, I'd start by prefacing it and saying that like a designer alone shouldn't be doing That work. (laughs) Um, so a designer can't like invent values to represent a full brand. Really, a lot of the work has to be done from the very top and needs to be authentic. Um, so whether that's the CEO where you you work, um, whatever that top position is, and however the, the business was built up should be based around values. And then the trick is really pulling those out and defining them in a way that everybody across the organization or company or institution um, can kind of harness. So I like to think of just a couple questions. One is, what do you as, you know, I guess in this case, like a collective company stand for? And then the other side, what do you stand against? And I think the first couple times running through those, if you're trying to discover and really pull out what the values are, you might get things that are long, sentence answers, um, and you have to kind of hit them with why a few times, like ask the question why and try to dig a little bit deeper. And then it is possible to get to those root values that um, are kind of threaded through the organization, and they will show up. You know, if you really found them in doing these types of exercises, they'll show up in um, how the company hires, how it develops policy or products, how it communicates internally, how it communicates externally through marketing or advertising, um, or social media. And you can start to see the threads. And if you if you don't see it threaded in different areas, then you know where the problem areas are that really need to be tackled. You can think about, well, how would we instill, um, you know, the value of honesty and integrity and justice? You know, if that's some of the the threads you had on your institutional values, how would we tie that into, you know, our website content if it's not there now and you can kind of dig in and um and work on kind of tackling those in a way that it can kind of come through in every area
1: Mm. it uh reminds me of a saying that one of my mentors uh told me he said the best way to motivate someone is to find what already motivates them Um, yeah and it's so true so with what you're saying, um, and something that I've never forgotten myself. Um, not just he was speaking from a from a place of leadership um, advice, but I I think what it really ties to is what you were saying just now about um, seeing if those values are in line with the rest of uh, the engine room. I guess the people that are create the institution itself. Um, So that's very cool. Um, Now, when we think about designers who, not just emerging designers, but just designers maybe that even want to transition into branding design, what practical advice would you give if they were to devote training for the next six to 12 months, let's say, whether it's part-time or full-time or whatever, but where should they focus their time and energy learning about branding?
0: I love this question. <laughs> <laughs> um, I I think that the real work is dealing with actual clients. And sometimes our, our traditional education can do a disservice by forgetting to bring in the kind of real client components, because then you can get into a shock when you go out into the real world as a designer or kind of a um, branding expert, trying to work with people that have their own needs and challenges and perceptions on things. So yeah, I would say working with real clients is key. And um, even if you have to do it for kind of little, little money as you get started. um, And I, I think there's also this idea that beautiful brands are the winning brands, but the working with actual clients who have goals and need to meet financial benchmarks in order to succeed really helps open up the perspective that branding when done right is helping the client achieve their objectives and stand out in the marketplace. And that's one component of how you do that is the visual look and feel, which is just as important as the copy and the tone of voice, um, all these things that make up. The brand as a whole, and when you fake that with kind of self-assigned projects, you take on the position of the client as well as the the designer, and so you kind of cheat the system, um, and may not be as comfortable um, working with end clients um, if you don't kind of cultivate and and get dirty.
1: <laughs> mm. Totally agree with that. Um... Now, let's swing the needle a little bit to the area about, I guess, uh, time. Uh, last year, we also caught up at the AIGA conference in Las Vegas, and uh, it was so great to see you. <laughs> and we spoke a little about your transition period because obviously now you've moved on. And you mentioned, uh, you know, taking a bit of time off to recalibrate, I guess, and uh, that. Hiatus, if you could call it that. Um, How important was that time off to, I guess, find your compass again?
0: Oh man, it was so important. I I think we are kind of used to culturally now, um, we're used to being on all the time and having flashing phones and different things kind of coming our way and getting sensory overload. Working at the White House was like that amplified times a hundred. Plus, you're learning all these valuable lessons, but you don't necessarily have the chance to like process them in the moment because then there's another one. It's you know, it's like looking through a you know, Twitter feed or <laughs> um browsing through videos on YouTube. An um, example I love is watching TED Talks. They're so fantastic until you end up watching five and you realize <laughs> you haven't processed anything from the first four because you're just so <laughs> immersed in in kind of going through them. Um, so taking a break was really, for me, a chance to process the lessons I had learned, um, really give back to the community as I was processing them by um, by sharing the insights I learned in the White House, by sharing um, the challenges and the really hard lessons learned with audiences that, um, you know, maybe it helps somebody uh, keep from going down the same path and um, kind of avoided some of the similar mistakes. But generally, I just think it's something that we don't value enough across the board. Those are moments of kind of pause and meditation to Recenter and come back into alignment, and think about okay. I, for me, at least, I did, you know, over twenty things in that role because it was such a startup environment, and everything was hyped up, and it was twenty four seven. What did I learn? And then what are the things that actually gave me energy out of all of the things that I worked on? What were the things that I did because I had to and because somebody needed to do it, but may not be what I actually want to continue doing moving forward. And how can I kind of talk about those different things for what they are um, and and push myself in the direction that I thoughtfully want to go versus feels natural given, you know, I just did X at the the White House. So naturally, I'm going to do X wherever I go next
1: you you created that space to to allow that deep reflection and and yeah self-realization and and self-actualization um that that's uh it's it's difficult but i would al- almost say that sometimes we can be our own worst enemy and create that problem for ourselves um i've certainly found myself in that situation many times uh the, the busy gets the better of, of me and, and, um, and everyone really. So it, I guess it's yeah. <laughs> learning as we go to uh, create that space. Um, a question I wanted to ask you was, this is a big one. So you ready for it.
0: <laughs> <laughs> I'm ready.
1: <laughs> What's missing in your design career that you haven't found yet? Hmm. This is a tricky one. I
0: think I think the thing that is missing for me maybe this is kind of going full circle to the story of my mom you know I think eventually I would like to have my own business or you know kind of lead from all sides and kind of um, start a business of my own and I've really been thoughtful about it throughout my my journey so far after leaving RISD you know, like, no, I want to, you know, experience managers. I want to get insights from being on the ground and learning from different team environments before I'm in a place to lead them. And I've grown into leadership roles now. Um, But I think the thing that I still have yet to kind of conquer is what would that look like for me if I defined it all on my own and I set up the business model myself and, I did all of the hiring, not just the design hiring or, you know, video team hiring, but all of the hiring from HR to um kind of design and support or, or whatever's really needed for the business model. So I, I think that would that would be it. And I have no idea when I'm gonna get there, but um, you know, I'm giving myself time and I, I wanna make sure when I do it, I do it right.
1: That's beautiful. I, I am. I'm sure that if uh, you do pursue that, uh, you will have uh, many people supporting you uh, with that decision. <laughs> uh, oh,
0: thank you. That's a great question, by the way. I'm like, oh, to really, you know, think on that one
1: for a second. <laughs> that's uh, that's uh, I think three now that I've got. That was that was pretty good in a row which is great great for <laughs> my confidence ramping
0: them up i'm like what comes next?
1: <laughs> well we're uh, about to wind down now and this is a question i ask most of my guests uh if you could travel back in time for 30 seconds uh and in your case speak to junior ashley axios perhaps the ashley finishing high school what would you tell her
0: and i think i would say you know kind of in the vein of what I was saying was one of my biggest lessons learned at the White House that like all of the things that make you feel less, you know, more insignificant or um, like you, you know, don't have what it takes are actually really, really valuable assets. So pay attention to them, embrace the messiness and realize that like every hurdle that you go through is actually something um, that is a lesson that not everybody has. It's an opportunity that you've gotten that others haven't to learn and to avoid something moving forward.
1: Who has been an impactful giant thinker in your life, Ashley, that person that has inspired you to think bigger and dig deeper in helping you reach your full potential?
0: Oh, man, you guys are going to think I'm so cheesy because everything is so White House, but I, I have to say, President Obama.
1: <laughs>
0: <laughs> I just, I just have to. I mean, he's remarkable in so many different ways, and I, you know, I don't know exactly how much comes through if you haven't met the man. I know that there are a lot of people who hate him and a lot of people who love him, but you know, being there and seeing how he cares, and he interacts with people from his wife to his children to his staff, how thoughtful he is in developing policy and how much he really cares like many of us designers do especially you know in public service or who want to do design for social good about making the experience good for for somebody else on the other end of things and I've just learned so much about his long-term vision as well as his humility and ability to you know stay calm and push through what has been a tremendous amount of turmoil and hate and, you know, political nonsense um, to get some real amazing work done um, despite all of that.
1: Yeah, I'm sure uh, many people would even be thrilled to, to be a, a fly on the wall. Um, so what's next for you and everything you're involved in for this year is there anything we should look out for
0: i mean all of the things so uh (laughs) i i started working at automatic which is the company behind wordpress.com um wordpress powers you know 27 percent of the internet i believe is the percentage right now and wordpress.com has you know 175 million unique monthly views for blogging and site hosting we're really transforming a lot of the internal mechanism in the product way to make sure that it works better for designers' needs and setting up your portfolios. For your needs as a small business owner, kind of growing your business and going from showcasing work to selling work online and needing that whole infrastructure. So um, you'll see a lot from the company soon, and I'm, I'm excited to, to be a part of that. Um, Also on the board of AIGA, we mentioned AIGA earlier, but it's the Professional Association for Design, um, largely based in the U.S. with uh, a bit of a presence overseas but that we're looking to grow. And AIGA, um, as a board member, I'm working on racial justice initiatives, so really talking about the ways in which designers can use their skills and abilities to um, kind of Mediate positive social change where there are tensions based on, um, race and ethnicity and ways that we can even be conscious in our own design practices of, um, you know, implicit biases that we might accidentally kind of instill into our work by, you know, showing default white iconography, um, or by, um, you know, choosing photography that isn't really representative of the groups that you're trying to feature and things like that. So I'm really excited about kind of pushing further into that and helping our communities grow as designers to be more ethical and kind of aware of the social implications of the work that we do. And then um, last thing I'll mention is Design Observer. So I'm on the editorial board and we're really looking to amplify voices of designers and people who uh, work very closely with design uh, across the globe. So they've already had great features for years now. From um, Jessica Hellfund to Michael Beirut, who started up Design Observer. They have Debbie Millman's Design Matters podcast. Um, there's a whole lot of programming, but now you're going to hear even more voices from uh, from people in and design industries that you hadn't really considered before. So um, I'm excited to be a part of, you know, bringing more
1: into the mix there. Amazing. So just a few things then <laughs> going on. <laughs> yeah. So how can listeners get in touch with you online? What's the best way?
0: The best way to contact me is through my site. It's ashleyaxios.com, dot com. Uh, And I'm also on Twitter and Instagram and Facebook and LinkedIn. Just look me up by my name.
1: Amazing. I'll certainly put the links up as well on this post. Ashley, thank you so much for your time in being so open and transparent with your stories and insights. It's been such a pleasure having you on the show.
0: Oh, thank you for having me. And let's get together in person again sometime soon.
1: Definitely. Cheers, Ashley. There you go, Giants. I hope you found this interview useful, inspiring, and good company wherever in the world you tuned in from. Feel free to share this with a friend or loved one if you feel it'd benefit them. And if you're feeling extra generous, I would deeply appreciate an iTunes review. It'll just help get the show in front of more people who really need advice on their own journey ahead. If you go to giantthinkers.com slash podcast review, it'll take you right there. A little teaser for the next one, she is a formally trained designer who previously worked at IDEO and with startups including Mailbox, Medium and Uber. Then a few years ago, she made a brave pivot and transitioned into spending more time painting, illustrating, writing and creating. Now I'm likely giving it away here, but her latest book is titled The Crossroads of Should and Must, so stay tuned for that one. I'll leave you with the two questions Ashley pointed out as a branding exercise that I feel could be great for our own personal reflection. What do you stand for versus what do you stand against? It certainly got me thinking, Giants. So stay hungry, stay curious, be well, and I'll catch you on the next episode.